Thank you for listening to the Giving Light Podcast. We are a family church and world outreach center. Our heart is to empower you to walk in true freedom and equip you to impact your world. Please visit our website at givinglight.org to learn more about us and our many resources, including original music by Brave Music, e-courses for leaders, tools for raising powerful kids, and more. If you would like to support Giving Light financially, visit our Give Online page to choose the best giving method for you. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy this message. Thank you so much for that introduction. Boy, is it really good to be with you all. I've uh, heard of you. I've met your pastors. I introduced myself early on when I got here, and, and the, the reputation of this house is a solid foundation, a house of strength, a house where destiny gets launched in people. You have a reputation throughout the valley, and for sure in my own heart, of being a people that make things solid. Can I, can I refer to a, a movie to describe you guys? That, I don't recommend this movie, all right? I saw it. I didn't know what was going to be in it. Okay, so disclaimer, the movie 300 was about the Spartans holding the line when the Persians were trying to come into Greece. And uh, there's a scene where the king of the Spartans meets up with the king of the Athenians. And they've got the Athens had this huge army, thousands of people behind them. And here's the king of Sparta, Leonidas, with only 300. So they meet up with each other. And the king of Athens kind of looks and says, that's all you brought? 300, we're facing a multitude, we can't even count them, you only brought 300 people. And the king, King Leonidas, starts looking at the men behind the king of Athens, and he said, what do you do for, what are you, sir? I'm a, and he said, I'm a farmer, what are you? I'm a metal worker, what are you? I'm a, you know, I'm a whatever, I make clothes. And then he turned around to his 300, and he said, what are you? And without hesitation, in unison, we are soldiers, And he turned to the other king and he said, you see, I brought more soldiers today. And I feel that about this house, that there is something of strength. Your pastors have laid such a solid foundation that uh, forget how many you have at any given point in time. You've got a generational impact and you have a much bigger regional footprint than you probably even know. So I appreciate the the uh, invite. I appreciate the introduction. I do love the community in Millersburg. You moved me to tears with your prayer because I just love that place. And yeah, it is a call. I'm from New York City. So it's just a little bit of a culture shock I had, you know, getting used to the valley up here. But I'm, I'm in love with the people here and I'm love, in love with what Jesus is doing in the people. May I, may I extend an invitation? Because I feel like you all need to be a part of, of joining together and bringing something to this valley. So March 22nd is a Sunday afternoon, and we're having a community worship night. Hillside's going to host this one. Your pastors have been a part of it before. I know Joel, is, you were on the worship team for one uh, We really want to bring the Spirit of God. Your worship is solid in this place. Jesus is present from the first strum of the guitar. That is evident. We need to bring the rest of the body of Christ deeper in that place of worship. And I feel, a, a role, I feel like God's a, uh, just assigned me some of that role. And I just want to invite all of you to come and flood the place with like real deal, getting in the presence of God kind of worship that night. So I'll, I'll be reaching out and see if some of you folks that were up on the platform could be on the worship team. The other thing, though, and this is a community thing, I've, gotten, I've been given favor with the, uh, really the people that run the town. How many of you know that in every small town, it's not the people that are elected to office that actually run the town, you know? 
So right away, I felt like a word of wisdom. The Lord said, find the women who run this place. And it's always, and I did. I found out who they are. They're this group called Millsburg Area working together. And I went to help out with the Cherry Blossom Festival. And God's really given me favor with them. So we have this year, the side of the gazebo in Millersburg, that whole grass area is all ours to do whatever we want with it. And I've been doing things with kids over the years, but this year I really felt, boy, you talk about the word of the Lord about the community that you just shared, um, that we're to really go for it. So we want to set up that whole area with ministry to the kids. So we'll do fun things with them. I'm even going to pull out my old juggling things and kind of engage the, I used to do that, BC days. And, but, but now Jesus will redeem it and I'll use it for good you know, for now. And uh, so we're going to do things to minister to the kids, and it would really be helpful to have as many people who just know how to walk up to somebody and engage Christ together with them and bring them into a place of prayer, not with any kind of fancy hoopla, but just as natural as how Jesus did it. And I just have a strong sense that that's what I've got here today before me. So you're invited to come and join with that, and I'll be in touch with your pastors about how to go about that. Praise God. I'm really honored to be invited here. Can I be honest? I was a little intimidated because I know I stalk you guys on Facebook. I, <laughs> we're now using Dr. Melody's teaching for our children's ministry. We've, you know, adopted. And I used to be a children's pastor. And I looked at it and said, that's us. We're using that. So we now use that with our kids. So I know that you've got a good quality. So, yeah, I was a little intimidated at first. Then I got excited because I know I can kind of hit the ground running with you. I don't have to explain certain things about the spirit and the anointing. I can use those terms freely, and I'm really excited to be with you. So I come today with an exhortation because I know that I'm standing in the presence of those who already understand that you're not called to attend a church gathering and just receive from the Lord and have a hoopla with Jesus for a couple of hours a week, but that your destiny is to transform this valley. That this portion of the valley, all of us together, all 30-odd thousand people that live here, will understand that the knowledge of the glory of God will cover this valley like the waters cover the seas. And I got to tell you, when I, got, when I was new here, and I was trying to get to know the intercessors and people that were to do, a witch came to Hillside one week. And she was, I don't remember her name, but apparently she was well-known. This is now 13 years ago, about this month. And she thought she wanted to introduce herself to me, so we talked a little bit. And, uh, and then I never saw her again. Somebody came to me not long after, I guess it was a year or two later, and said that she moved away. Now I was praying that she'd get saved, but I was like, all right, get saved or move out, you know, whatever, you know, one of the, but, but she moved out of the valley, and somebody who knew her said that she told her on her way out that she had a dream that haunted her. It's fun to haunt witches, isn't it? I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean she's a real practicing occultic pagan witch. And she said, I had this dream that a flood came through the valley and it was overwhelming everything and I was terrified of it. So I'm getting out of here while I can. All right? So <laughs> how many of you know God speaks to his people, but God speaks to everybody sensitive in the spirit. His destiny for this valley is to flood it with his glory. And so you and I have the joy of watching God at work and partnering with him and seeing that work. So I come to you with a word of encouragement today to make sure that none of us misses out. That's the pastor heart of me, is that I, I don't believe I need to tell you that you're destined to be the answer to the prayer Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, you will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You pray that and God says, good, let's get going, right? I don't need to tell you that, but I do know that there's some things that the enemy puts our way and there's certain things that need to be overcome. 
We sang so many awesome songs this morning about overcoming, about how, you know, whatever the enemy meant for evil, God's going to use it for good. But how many of you know when you've experienced that wrestling match, when you've been in that place where something in you, it feels like you just hit a wall, and now you're not wrestling against flesh and blood. You're wrestling against principalities and powers who hate this church, who hate all light, much less you dare to call yourself giving light. He, he would love to see this light put under a bushel. So I come to you with a word of, of I guess, healing and a word of exhortation. So if you come in your Bible, Exodus 15, I want to bring something to you that's really been stirring in my heart. Uh, some of you knew, you knew that there was a memorial service on Friday for Colton Gessner. I was good friends with their family. They asked me to come and minister to them in the middle of that. I haven't really been a part of that family's life for a few years now, but uh, they wanted me to, to be a part of it. So I, I, I willingly dived in on a family's grief, and I asked the Lord, to tenderize my heart, because I want to experience this together with you, because I, like many of you know, I know how to navigate through the valley of the shadow of death, because I've walked with the good shepherd through that place myself, and it was an honor to be, how many, it's an honor to be invited in somebody's life when grief has hit. Grief, I've realized, is the emotion that stirs every other emotion up out of the heart. When you've been hit hard, and grief is simply when you love something deeply and you lose it. The, the sense you get, and you, it comes from the gut. It's like deeper than the heart. It comes from your gut, and it stirs everything up that's ever been buried in that place. And if you're not good at sharing with the Lord what's going on in your life, if you've been like I used to be before I came to trust God, one who knew really well, I can bury this thing and move on. How many of you know if you bury something that you're feeling, you bury it alive? And it, it'll, it doesn't need to be resurrected. It just needs an opportunity. And grief for sure brings that out. A friend of mine said, anger, when melted down in the presence of the Lord, returns to the grief which gave it birth in the first place. I thought that's one of the deepest things I've ever heard. And it's so true. So this grief was beginning, and, and I was reminded of how this is the very first thing that God chose to do with his people Israel. So you know the story Ten plagues, God made a distinction between his people and the Egyptians, judged all ten of the major Egyptian gods right before their eyes. If, it could need any, if they needed any more convincing, God is for you, not against you. What else could he do? I mean, he made it as obvious as day. I've chosen you. You're my firstborn. You're my son. I love you. I've called you by name. You're mine. And yet they get out. With a mighty hand and outstretched arm, they get across the Red Sea, if there was any doubt left. Is God for us? Yes, I am. He got your back against the sea and an army behind you. As if God would say, let me just make sure you have a picture you'll never forget. I'm going to put you across on the other side, and you're going to watch those who once held you captive drown right before your eyes in the same water you walk through. Now, would any normal person still need convincing? Yeah, God loves me. He's for me. He'd... Now, before we judge them, though, we all agree we're the same way. He delivers us out of so much. Just the fact that we came to salvation in Christ, we already know what he's capable of doing. We know what our life used to be like and what it started to become like the day after we came to know him. And yet, doesn't he just keep having to remind us? I'm still for you. No, really, I didn't change my mind. 
that thing you did, the thing you said, the thing you realized about yourself that was always true, but now you're in the light and you recognize it. Yeah, I knew all of that. And I'm still wanting you to behold the manner of love I've given you. I called you my child. And so here are the Jews. They're on the other side of the Red Sea. And they're three days in the wilderness. And this is all, their whole wilderness journey. It's fun to preach out of, isn't it? Because it's like kids in the back seat of the car. You know, are we there yet? I mean, I always feel like God's like, all right, I will pull over this car. You know, God and Moses having these conversations together. At one moment, Moses is like, I didn't ask for this. And God's like, all right, Mo, that's it. I'm going to strike them all dead. And it's like mom and dad in the front seat of the car <laughs> this whole time. But the whole journey is about, you know, it's easy for God to get them out of Egypt. But getting Egypt out of them, that's a whole different story. Right? They say you could take the, the boy out of the city, but you'll never take the city out of the boy. And it's a true, it's a true thing. Every once in a while, New York Steve comes back. <laughs> certain moments, certain things bring it out, you know, and I'm ready to go again. And, and I remember, no, that's BC, Steve. We don't do things that way in this kingdom, right? So here they are. I'll start in verse 22. It says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. So there he made for them a statute and a regulation, and there he tested them. And he said, if you give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, do what is right in his sight. Give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes. I will not put the diseases on you, which I've put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. I, the Lord, am your healer. You've, I'm sure, had a teaching about all the names of God, the covenant names of God, as we call them. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord is my provider, right? These compound, this is Jehovah Rapha. I am the Lord, your healer. They're called covenant names because Yahweh, Jehovah, is the name by which God introduced himself to his covenant people. Anything following Yahweh or Jehovah means this is another aspect of my loving kindness that I'm about to extend to you. I'm going to reveal my love for you in a fresh new way right now. And isn't it fascinating that when God introduces himself as the covenant God, the God who loves you and heals you, he wasn't healing any bodies that day. There's no record of the crippled beginning to walk. There's no record of the blind eyes being open. It was as if God was saying, there's something deeper that needs to be healed first. Because if you're going to trust me, because I'm taking you into a promised land. And you know, by the way, I'm not taking you straight there because you're not ready for the giants yet. One day you will be, not because you're going to be stronger than them, but because you're going to trust me more. So you're going to be unafraid when you look in the face of a giant as David was. You're not ready for the giants yet because you haven't learned how to trust me yet. You haven't learned that we together are going to be doing certain things. And I'm not giving you a commission. Go into the promised land and kill all the giants and take all the cities. And I'm not going to be waiting in some far off place. You're going to learn how to partner with me. You're going to have to learn how to walk with me in this thing. And so God introduces himself. I'm the Lord. And here's the first thing I want to tell you about me. I'm the Lord who heals you. What was it that they needed healing of? Well, it says he brought them there to test them. Brought them there to test them. Now I don't know about you. But when I used to hear the word test, 
I broke out in a cold sweat. Right? I, never, like, I remember things like Ms. Opitz, my third grade teacher. New York City public school, Ms. Opitz, 36 kids in her class. She was an absolute Nazi. We were all terrified. And, you know, Ms. is, you know, she was a feminist and, and all this. And so she was scary, shaved head and the whole bit. I was terrified. I was so scared of her. My memory of tests is that I was so afraid because she said, when we start this test, don't even ask to go to the bathroom. So I didn't ask to go to the bathroom. I was in third grade. I actually wet my pants. So I was so afraid of her, right? I needed inner healing for these things when I came to the Lord. Oh, test, and we think test means it's like pass or fail, because that's what we've been trained, the meaning of the word test is. If you've come to know God, you know he doesn't set us up for failure, ever. He's not like that. God doesn't put things in front of us so he could say, see, I told you so. He puts things rather in front of us so we could see how far along are we? How much am I ready to bear the weight of your glory? So a God test is kind of like when you test the ice. You know, you kind of put your foot out on it, and, and then if it bears you, you step out a little bit more, or else you just push your little brother out and see what happens. No, I'm kidding. You don't, that was BC, Steve. You don't do that. But you put, you put some weight on it and pressure, and as you get comfortable that it's solid, then you step out into the deep because you know it's, it can bear your weight. You're not going to fall in. And that's what the tests of the Lord are like. He gives us a little bit more weight to carry as we grow in him, a little bit more strength to strength as we grow in him. And each test is another opportunity for us to know. You know, there, there's a thing where we have to believe God. We have to believe in God for what we do. But it's harder for us to understand that God also believes in us. And so when he puts a test in front of us, it's so we can have a reality check. You know, I can bear a certain amount of weight. How many of you know you were destined to carry the glory of God? Every one of us, right? We carry the glory of God. Do you know what the word glory in the Hebrew means? Of course you do. You go to giving light. It means the weightiness of God. That's the, the primary meaning of the word glory. So carrying the presence of God is like carrying a weight. And so when God tests us, he brings us to a place where we have to come face to face with something. For the Hebrews, they were coming face to face with bitterness. What does it say of them in Egypt? That the Pharaoh made their lives bitter with bondage and with labor and with hard work. So it was as if God was saying, I'm going to test you and bring you face to face with your greatest weakness right now. You've got bitterness in your heart. And so I'm going to put something in your mouth. I'm going to let you taste something in your mouth that's going to give evidence of what's on, in, on the inside of your heart. God brings us to these places. The enemy's plan for those places is that we'll, we'll point our finger up at God. We'll accuse God. That we'll believe that God brought me in this place and therefore God is not for me. He's against me. If the enemy can ever convince us of that fact that God is not for us. He's just arrested us in our progress in the Lord. And so aren't you grateful that God does it little by little? That he doesn't throw us right into the deep end, as we say? Like how my swim instructor taught me to swim. <laughs> Boys Club of Queens, he just said, just get in. <laughs> little by little. And he puts things in front of us that are just little tests. You start out little, and then you work your way to greater and greater things. If you're called to great strength, you're called to great tests along the way. I just started relearning this because I got out of shape. 
I used to be a swimmer, I played water polo, and, and six kids, you know, you don't have time for that. I told my wife, I'm, I'm getting, I'm just having some extra, I'm putting on pregnancy weight, you know, so I can sympathize with you. And, you know, and it, it happens faster than you expect. The older you get, the faster it happens. So I decided this year when my daughter um, turned eight, I realized, you know, I'm going to be 60-something when she graduates high school, and I don't want to be a doddering 60-year-old man who can't keep up with his 18-year-old girl. So I'm going to get back in shape. So I went back to the pool at the Y, and I started swimming. And I thought, well, let me just, I'll just start swimming the warm-up I used to give the kids that I used to coach when I coached swimming. And, and about four lengths of the pool in, I was checking to make sure the lifeguard was watching. <laughs> because it had been a long time since I had tested the strength that I used to have. And I'd gone lax. I didn't, I avoided testing. I avoided anything that would, you know, all, all working out, all physical strength is about pushing, testing your muscles, putting them up against an obstacle that's hard to move. And if you don't ever do that, well, you become a different shape, right? Round is a shape, but it's not the kind of shape we're looking for. And so God puts these things in front of us, not because he's angry. Sometimes, how many of you know, God doesn't even put it in front of us. It's just there. The enemy put it there. Life put it there. We put it there ourselves. Those are the best ones, aren't they? And then we get the feeling, well, I made my bet. I got to lie in it. No, no. He's canceled every debt, everything. We don't have to live with any mistake you've ever made, but that's another message. I better keep away from that one. He tested them in a place called the wilderness of shore. The wilderness. How many of you get shivers when you think, oh, no, not the wilderness. God, please don't take me to the wilderness. Because that's where God beats up on people. We think the wilderness is the woodshed. I must have done something, and that's why I'm in this wilderness place, as we call it. And we moan about the wilderness, and we sing the blues in the wilderness. I think that's where the blues originated, right? Lamentations. I'm, I'm in the wilderness now. I'm away from the presence of God. We're not away from the presence of God. I'd propose that the wilderness is the place where God chooses for our honeymoon. Because the wilderness represents the place where we can no longer do it for ourselves. We can't do it on our own. That's what the wilderness means. God has allowed everything to be stripped away from us that we used to depend on that had nothing to do with him so that we could be reminded that apart from him, we could do nothing. And so he takes us in this wilderness place. And if we do it right, if we, uh, I think um, there ought to be a book at some point like the, the David's Guide to the Wilderness. You know, how to, the Wilderness Survival Guide, according to David, because he did it right. But there's a way to come through the wilderness, as the Song of Solomon puts it, leaning on the arm of our beloved. Who is this who comes up out of the wilderness, not broken, not estranged, but no, one with her, her beloved? That's the intention of the wilderness. God, that was God's intention. Uh, come away, he said to Pharaoh, come, let my people go so that they could have a festival unto me in the wilderness. Yeah. I'm going to take them to some place where nothing grows, where there's no water, and we're going to have a party. Out in the, this is going to be our wedding feast celebration. He has a different idea about what parties look like and about what a honeymoon looks like. I, I said that to my wife after our honeymoon. She said, boy, you're lucky you didn't do that. <laughs> but God has a different idea because he's aiming to build intimacy with us. He wants to connect with us in a place without distractions. That's the hardest thing in the American church, isn't it? We are surrounded by distractions. And if you're diagnosably ADD, as I am, 
was. <laughs> I have the mind of Christ now, but I'm still prone to squirreling off on things all the more. He needs to get us to a place where it's just us and him. If you've never had a time of what we call solitude, how many of you know if the Son of God needed it? Right? Which of us doesn't need it? Now, I don't know if you can fast for 40 days off in the wilderness. Jesus was prepared for that. But I'd say you must have some time in your life where you have extended time, uninterrupted time, just you and your God, and let him speak to you and let your soul communicate to God what it's been trying to say, but you've been too busy to hear it. If we don't have that, we're going to end up like the Hebrews in this story. Is the wilderness of Shur. That word in the Hebrew means a wall. The Hebrews hit a wall. Three days into the wilderness, and they bumped up against a wall. You ever been there? Y'all, I heard the amens going around. We've all been there. You hit a wall. There's just a sense in the heart that I can't take another step. I don't even know if I want to go any further from here. And even if I want to, I feel like I'm chained. I can't get past this wall. There's this thing in front of us. I saw a great meme about this. Actually, your memes, I, I like copy like 20 of your, you got some great memes out there. Thanks for doing that. That's a great ministry to the body. This might have been yours, but it said, perhaps God has assigned you this mountain to show everyone else it can be moved. So maybe that thing that you've bumped up against is because God knows you're ready for this test. You've been working out in your spirit. You've been working out in your intimacy. You've been connecting with me. Your spirit is strong. You're like Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's the last muscle man I know of. Who on, the, on your inner man, you look like that, and you don't even know it. So I'm going to put this obstacle in front of you, and if you don't let it shout louder than my voice, and you push it, you're going to watch how you can knock that thing over. That's an awesome thing. Remember David, when he faced his giant, that wasn't his first rodeo, folks. All this business about, you know, I I mean, I love well-meaning people who make books and draw pictures for kids. But if I see another picture of little David, three feet tall with Saul's armor like down here, and he can't even stand up, I'm going to puke. He was not a little boy. David already had a reputation before this of being a man of valor. Why? Because some lion one day came and tried to take one of his little lammies. And he said, I don't think so. Not on my watch. And he tore the thing apart. Then a bear came and he tore the bear apart. David was well prepared for Goliath. God walked him through a process. He didn't back down from the lion. He didn't back down from the bear. Goliath was toast before he even stepped out on the battlefield. David's like, this guy's nothing. So it is with us. When we allow God, when we permit God to put these things in front of us, instead of saying, oh, that's a wall. I guess I got to go somewhere else. You can say mountain be moved. That's what it means. Mountain be moved. So they came into this place, and it says they couldn't drink the waters because they were bitter. So this wall that they came up against was a physical representation of what was inside their gut, what was at the core of their being, 400 years of being slaves. Your whole identity at that point is I'm a slave. I'm a slave. My dad was a slave. My grandpa was a slave. We're a family of slaves. It's the only, the only way we've known how to think for 10 generations has been, yes, sir. What do I do today? Your life is not your own. And they'd become embittered during that process. Bitterness was like their family inheritance. 
I learned from my father how to complain about the whip of the Pharaoh. I learned from my, who learned from his father, and we've passed on this heritage so much. How many generations went by where the people who used to be, these were the sons and offspring of Israel himself. They, they were there when Joseph got favor in that land. This was the same people, but after 10 generations, surely they were saying, where is God? Someone had the audacity, or maybe someone got so desperate that finally they cried out to God, and God raised up a deliverer for them. But in their heart, there was this bitterness. The depths of the heart in the scriptures are always referred to like waters. So, you know, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks, right? So this thing comes up from the inside. Proverbs said, my son, keep your heart with all diligence because from it spring all the issues of life. It's like water that flows out. Jesus said, look, if anyone's thirsty, let them come to me and drink. And if you start drinking something different, that out of his innermost being, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. That's what, that's what it means to drink. Whenever you're around water in the scriptures, God's speaking about your soul. What's on the inside? I'm going to give you something on the outside to reveal what's on your inside. And my people, you're full of bitterness. You're full of bitterness. And we're going to deal with this. Because if you don't deal with this, you're going to come to a point where you don't step forward into your destiny again. It says that the place was called Mara. And I don't think they had a signpost next to it because they wouldn't, because, you know, or, or they wouldn't. Imagine three days in the wilderness, the first, like the young men who were probably out front, the water, and they all ran to it. And they spat it out. It wasn't named that. It was called that. Well, they weren't very creative with names because the water was bitter. What are you going to call it? It's the bitter, the bitter springs. That's what the place was called. And they called it that because that's what it tasted like. And here's the amazing thing about Mara and bitterness. The same word, Mara, rendered a little bit differently is myrrh. In fact, myrrh means bitter. That's literally what myrrh, the oil of myrrh means. And myrrh is drawn from the heartwood of the myrrh tree. So it's what's on the innermost part of the myrrh tree. When you draw it out, it's nothing but bitterness. But it has a quality to it besides just tasting bad. You know how we, we use the expression, boy, that really left a bad taste in my mouth. Right? Something happened, and it left a bad taste in my mouth. Why do we say that? It was a bad experience, and it left a bad taste in my mouth. And myrrh tastes bitter in the mouth. But it's the first spice used to make the anointing oil for the priest. So God is able to take that thing that leaves a bad taste in our mouth. He takes those things. We sing about it, and then we got to live it. That left a bad taste in my mouth. But God, you're going to take that thing that the enemy intended for me to take that bitter thing and swallow it so I get bitter on the inside. No, you're going to take that bitter thing and use it to anoint me for the ministry. He's going to take your mess and make it into a ministry. Every broken thing that's happened in your life, everything that's tried to devastate you, God is working a ministry in you. It's all a matter of how we respond. It's all a matter of what am I going to do? I got this bad taste in my mouth with what just happened. This relationship, this betrayal, this disease, this you know, thing that happened on my job, whatever happened, that thing left a bad taste in my mouth. God, what are we going to do with this thing? Myrrh tastes terrible but it actually has healing properties. Some of you who do essential oils, you can educate me about this at some point. But it tastes bad, but when you swallow it, they used to actually use it to heal the stomach. 
before we had Agricept and other, you know, whatever we use these days. It, heal, it has a healing property, and it's part of the anointing of the priest. Because the people of God, when they came to this spot, it says that they grumbled against Moses. They grumbled against Moses. Who wants to sign up for leadership again? God brought them to this place. After all the signs and wonders, they get in trouble. And Moses, this is your fault. God will get all the glory when he drowns the Egyptians. And Moses, we're going to stick our finger at you when things go wrong. You don't know anything about that. <laughs> I'm convinced now that this revelation is how ministries survive the anointing, as we say. How anybody really makes it through any kind of leadership. I mean, it's not just leadership. It's life. That to learn how to navigate through and overcome the bitterness, the events of life that make us bitter, that's the key to success. So these people didn't know that yet. They grumbled against Moses. Three days, no water. Now we're here. Now what are we going to do? It's a fascinating thing. Murmuring is how the King James translates it, right? And you just, I used to think murmur just meant, it sounds like, right? Like the kids in the backseat after 10 hours on the way to vacate. It sounds like that, but it's much deeper than that. Because although the grumbling does come out of the mouth, where does the mouth speak from? The abundance of the heart. So there's something deeper. This word actually means to stop, to stop in your tracks. And the implication of the word is, I'm not taking another step. I'm going to stay here permanently. That's what the Hebrew word means. So it was coming out of their mouth, although it was complaining, what are we going to drink? Their heart was saying, I'm not taking another step. I don't trust you, Moses. And really what they're saying is God pointed out to Moses, I don't trust you, God. I don't like the way you're taking me right now. I don't like this path that you've got me on. You put bitter water in front of me when I'm three days thirsty. I don't trust you. I'm not taking another step. And in moments when tragedy strikes, in moments when grief really hits our heart, which you can't live but a few years before something touches you that deeply, that if we fail to process it together with the Lord, we build up like a testimony against God. And if we haven't learned, if we don't master the art of going to God with these kind of things, we become like the Hebrews and say, I'll go this far, but no more. So we stop extending ourselves in love because somebody wounded us or some, several somebodies wounded us, and that's it. I don't care if the Spirit of God writes it on the wall. No way I'm extending myself to that coworker one more time. Or I've prayed for the sick. For the 50th time, I still haven't seen anybody actually healed yet. I'm not praying for anybody else. That's embarrassing. Right? So this is the bitter testimony that was being built up in them. So they said, we are not taking another step until we go on. When our heart gets in that place, we're in need of being broke. We're in need of what happened next with these Hebrews. So how do we avoid that? When everything happens process all of life with the Lord. There's, I've never known a time in my life, and I've never met anybody who invited Jesus in on their grief that didn't come through on the other side stronger, more joyful, trusting him more. 
in the midst of the trial, as, as we were exhorted earlier, in the middle of the pain, that's the time to say, Jesus, I need you right now. But how many of you have experienced what our heart says is, I'm, I'm going to get as far away from you as I can. If this is the way you're going to take me, I can't handle this anymore. And the Spirit of God, as if, as if no one already says, yeah, I know you can't handle it. Invite me in. Let me come into that place. I want to meet you in that place and take what looks like a mess and make it a message. I want to take your brokenness and out of that, everybody's going to know it wasn't you that did this. It was me and you're going to be an age. You're going to carry my glory from this place. So I don't know. I, you know, I went through about a dozen words in my heart that I wanted to share with all of you. And the Lord landed on this one. And I feel like I'm speaking to someone or several someones. Whatever it was that happened, it's time to trust the Lord again. It's time to invite the Lord back in on that place. Because like what Moses did, well, let me just share this testimony. I feel like i got to share this. My wife and I do have six kids, but our oldest is 27 and our youngest is eight. And it wasn't because we took a break. It was because the Lord had other plans and the enemy had some plans too. And we had three miscarriages during those big gaps of years. And there was one of them in particular. I was the family pastor of Christ Community Church. At that time, there were 2,000 people in the church. It was an awesome ministry. God was moving, glorious things happening. And of course, I knew most of the church. I was the, mainly in the children's ministry. And then my wife had a miscarriage at about 13 weeks. So we had just that week shared the news that we were having a baby. So 2,000 people who we love and love us all know about it. And then my wife had this really painful miscarriage, like full-blown labor and delivery, delivered our little, little girl. We named her Elise. And, um, and then she had to go to the hospital, was bleeding out. It was just a really traumatic experience. So, you know, in the middle of the crisis, you go into crisis mode. I wasn't thinking about anything, but my wife needs help right now. She's bleeding. I'm here to help her. I'm going to do that. After it was all over, Probably 24 hours later, I finally got her home in bed. I ministered to our older kids who all understood what was going on, managed to get them to sleep after many tears, and then it was just me and my God. And I had this moment with God. And this is where I learned, you know, where do you learn all this stuff? Yeah, right? You don't just read the book, yeah. right? <laughs> Things that they didn't teach me in seminary, right? You, you learn by writing another book called The Living Epistle of Your Life. And you do it by walking with him and letting him show you how to make this come alive. And so I had my little quiet place in my bedroom. We had this attic bedroom, and I was going to go let God have it. I was mad. That was the only thing I was feeling. I was angry. Why? I got to tell 2,000 people now about this. And you know how it is when you have a great loss and you have a lot of people, well-meaning people who want to help you. So they share their words of comfort, and they're not as comforting as they intend them to be. You know what I'm talking about. You, you want to help, but you just, it's awkward. You don't know what to say. What do you say to somebody who just lost a baby? I knew that was coming. I was mad because my kids now, who had hoped in God, this was our baby of promise. This was our Isaac. It had been four years, and finally we're having a baby, and now I have to explain death to them again. And, and I was mad at God for that. I was mad at God for, for me. You promised me a child. You know, this was, we waited on you. We believed you. Everything was all, all awash. And I went to this spot. I said, that's it. 
I'm going to let God have it right now. I'm going to write my own Psalm of David right now. You know, he, he had, you know, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? All this stuff, right? I was going to write my own Psalm like that. And I'm telling you, before any words came out of my mouth, it, I almost turned around because it felt almost physical that somebody wrapped their arms around me. And I heard it almost audibly, just like that. And I just melted to the ground. And I poured out my tears before the Lord. And I want to tell you that the next morning I woke up and it was a whole new, bright new day. That was supernatural. God visits us in our pain when we go to him with it. When we do like the Hebrews did and say, not another step. I don't trust you. Well, that's exactly where we stop on our journey. And we keep drinking from the wells of bitterness, which they would have done for the rest of their time. So they move on. Moses cried out to the Lord. Moses knew. All friends of God learn this. This is what friends do. A friend of God, the knee-jerk reaction, the instinctive response to anything is to go to God with it. Who's your first person that you call when something happens? Your best friend, right? And when you talk to that person, you're not measuring your words. You're not being polite. You're just unfiltered, pouring your heart out, whatever comes out. I hope all of you have a friend like that. I think everybody needs three friends like that to make it through. But what a friend we have in Jesus. Because some of our friends are more helpful than others. I, I, if you have a friend like that, make sure there's somebody who knows how to help you turn your heart back to the Lord and not replace the Lord. Right? I mean, it's one thing to have a good cry on somebody's shoulder, but they will never be able to give you what the Lord's presence can give you. A good friend in a situation like that knows how to turn the heart back to God and say, come on, I know you're too weak to get to his presence right now, but I'll carry you before the throne right now because right now I see you're ready to fall apart. And that's why I'm here. Like the four men who had to carry the paralytic to Jesus, sometimes we do feel paralyzed. Thank God when we have friends who know, I got to get you to Jesus right now because I don't have all of what you need. So Moses cried out to God, and he knew this is what friends do. The glorious thing about pouring our heart out to Jesus is that he gets it. He gets it. I remember I grew up, uh, I went to an Episcopal church growing up, and it was, I knew about God, but I never knew God. So like I was an altar boy. I grew up Catholic. Like this guy, you get to wear robes and you get to do something in the service. And the stained glass window in front of me, I don't know what it was depicting. I don't want to go back and see. But Jesus looked mad. And we were looking up at that, and he looked mad. And I, th- I was looking up, thinking, oh, he knows what I did last night, you know. And, and it, it just always looked. And God was this distant, callous, you know, faraway thing for me. And the joy of coming to know Christ was to know he understands me because he experienced on purpose all the things we try to avoid. You know, like that day, like I ministered this um, at the memorial service. It struck me again how none of us wants to have that day that the Gessner family had last Sunday where you find out that your son was just killed in a horrific accident. Nobody signs up for that day. Nobody signs up for the experience of life that leave that bad taste in our mouth. Nobody signs up for grief and heartache. We just don't. We don't. But we serve a God who did. 
know that we buried Colton Gessner's body in the ground, but we know there's going to be a reunion one day. And although the father knew when the son was crucified, he knew he'd have him back, he experienced that grief. He was touched with that grief. Jesus himself was described by Isaiah, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. In heaven, there's no grief. There's nothing but fullness of joy. And at God's right hand, nothing but pleasures forevermore. Grief is an unfamiliar feeling. But the son was willing to engage in the realm of human emotion, be touched with the feelings of all of our weaknesses. He experienced grief. So that moment where he stood before a tomb where his friend lay. You know the story, right? John 11, Lazarus, he came and first Martha came and greeted him. And like any friend would do, she met, and Martha, of course, being Martha, greeted Jesus right at the edge of town. If you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. And then she said, but nevertheless, I know the Father always hears you. She didn't know what he was going to do, but more four days in a tomb, they'd never seen him do anything like that yet. But she poured out her heart to him, and he reassured her. He said, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. You know, he who believes in me will never die. Even though he dies, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. He reassured her heart. And then he went and saw Mary. And I don't, I don't try to make too much because the scriptures don't tell us too much. But we know Mary was the one sitting at Jesus' feet. Mary was the one who just seemed to desire intimacy with him. And she was ready to face, if you had to face Martha, right? She was willing to face the music with Martha because Jesus was in the house. She just wanted him, wanted his presence. She's the one who broke open her alabaster box and poured out anointing on his feet before his burial. She desired intimacy. So when Jesus came and Mary greeted him, she said the same thing Martha said. Jesus, if you were only here, this wouldn't have happened. And it says that Jesus wept. There's something about the way friends communicate their heart to God. I hope you have an honest, forthright prayer life with God. I hope that you have learned. And if you haven't, I'm urging you to learn how to pour your heart out to him. Because when Mary poured out her heart to Jesus, he wept. He knew what he was about to do. He already knew, I am the resurrection and the life. What's a grave to me? But he wept with her. I feel your pain. It's like he said, I want to feel your pain. I want to know what you're experiencing right now because I've never experienced grief before like you humans do. I want to be touched with it. He wants to be touched with whatever it is that's broken right now. He wants to know from you, what is it? It's an amazing thing about prayer with God, isn't it? Because we pray and we know he already knows what we're about to pray and yet he wants to hear from us. Why? Because he's our friend. This is what friends do. We talk. We share our hearts with one another. And there's never going to be a time that we can ever share anything with Jesus that he's going to say, oh, wow, I don't know what that feels like. Go ahead and tell him all about how painful it is that your friend betrayed you. Yep, check. I don't know what that feels like. What it feels like to be all alone. All your friends left you in your hour of need. Yep, check. I know what that feels like. Tell him what it feels like to be crucified. None of us have ever experienced that. I don't care what kind of day we have. We've never had the day that Jesus signed up for. As if, to, why do you have to do it like that? Because it's never going to be a one of us who should ever then feel. I can't share my heart with him. He'll never understand. He will understand because he experienced it already. As a matter of fact, he nailed it all to the cross on that day. 
So it says that Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. The Lord showed him a tree. Very odd way to make water sweet. He could have done anything. His staff had been the thing before. Stick your staff in that thing, Mo. If I was in the crowd and I was smart enough, I'd say, hey, you know, that thing turned to Nile of blood. Maybe it'd make the water sweet. But God showed him a tree. He showed him a tree. I think the phrase is right in there so we'd connect the dots. Because there's another tree. There was another tree that can go into us if we allow it to. It's the tree that was on Calvary where Jesus nailed all of that to the cross. He wasn't just a man of sorrows intimately acquainted with grief. Surely he bore our sorrows and he carried our grief and he crucified it already. If we allow him to in our season of pain, in our season where bitterness is trying to take root, it's already been taken care of. We have but to allow that tree into the water of our soul so that we could taste and see that the Lord, he is good. What's the solution when bitterness comes our way? Taste the Lord right now. Because the best way to get a bitter taste out of your mouth is to throw something sweet in there. The solution's not, I need a counselor right now to tell me everything's going to be all right. The solution is taste him, experience him. Don't just theorize about the God who's with me. Taste and see that he's good. It's amazing, you know? David wrote that psalm. You know when he wrote that psalm? Psalm 34. David knew. David knew. Go ahead and tell David about your day sometime. (laughs) David, after being Saul's right-hand man, armor bearer to the king, worshiped and cured him of his demonized craze led the armies of Israel out in battle. This is what happened after Goliath. The most celebrated man in Israel in a day was a fugitive running for his life, the whole nation turning their back on him, offering him up to tell Saul where he was hiding. And then to make matters worse, in his crazy, I don't know what he was thinking, he picked up the sword of Goliath at the house of the priest who fed him, and then he went to Gath with it. That's where Goliath was from. He had Goliath's sword, who he killed and cut his head off with it. And then he went to the king of the Philistines, right to the capital city, Goliath's hometown. Go tell, go look, at, look at David and judge him like we've never done things as dumb as that. In our panic, in our grief, where do I go? I got nowhere else to go. I'm going to go. This was a bad idea because all of a sudden they say, hey, hey, hey. Before you think anything, O Achish, who's the king of the fields, he said, this is the guy they're singing about. You know, Saul killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. This is that guy. And then David realized, oh, this was a bad idea. So he started to pretend he was crazy, scratched against the walls of the building and drooled out of the side of his mouth. He went from being the most celebrated hero in Israel's history to pretending to be a madman drooling out the side of his mouth. Any normal person, boy, that'll leave a bad taste in your mouth. God, you anointed me king. Samuel, the prophet, whose word never fell to the ground, meaning everything he ever said, can really, this is it? This is your way with me? He had every cause to become bitter on that day, but not David. A man after God's own heart wrote a song to commemorate the occasion. You read Psalm 34 the next time you're having a bad day and see how David said, oh, taste and see that the Lord, he is good. That's what he wrote in his journal that day. 
All right, bad idea. Don't go to Achish again when you're feeling like that. But taste and see that the Lord, he is good. Happy is the one who fears him. It says Moses put the the tree in the water and the water became sweet. The water became sweet. God doesn't change what happened in the past, but he changes our perspective on it. Because it's not the things that happen to us in life that determine our future. It's how we respond to them. And sometimes it's how we remember them. Everything that the enemy intended for evil. You'd be like Joseph. Your brothers threw you in a pit, sold you to slavery. Then they got thrown in another pit. And his perspective at the end, God sent me here. Oh, you intended it for evil. That's where that phrase comes from. You know, that was Joseph's line. You, my brothers, intended it for evil, but the Lord intended it for good. And he, he sent me here, not you. He sent me here ahead of you to save your lives. And that's just what I'm going to do. I'm, gonna ta- I'm not going to take your lives. I'm here to save your lives right now. Now that is how God takes what can make us bitter and turns it into a ministry, a powerful ministry that nobody could take away. So, Father, I pray that you would take every last one of us. We open our soul to you right now and permit you to take that tree, that cross at Calvary, everything that you paid for and crucified on that cross, all of our sorrows, all of our griefs, and we open our inner man to you now to receive what you will pour into us. Wash that bad taste out of our mouth as we drink from you, as we come to you thirsty and say we drink from you because we want to taste and we want to see how good you are. Go into our innermost being and wash away the bitterness. We declare we'll not be a bitter people. We'll be a better people. That we would carry your glory and all the world will know. Amen.